thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. As our name implies, here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we spend most of our time discussing the different ways military air power is used in combat. But combat, as the term goes, can come in many different forms, from the traditional force-on-force warfare to flying into destructive storms, reference our previous Hurricane Hunters episode, to -to head-to-head competition, a la last week's Racing Jets episode. Well, this week is more of the same as a 30-plus year aerial firefighting veteran joins us to describe how battling Mother Nature is not all that different from the combat we've been discussing all along. While I liken it to the Marine Corps, we're a balanced force of combined arms, and our principle is rapid response, initial attack. To keep a fire at or under 10 acres, you got to get out there fast. The window of opportunity is small, and we provide support for our ground troops so they can get in there and put it out. Have to get another look here. They're starting all over down there. And I'm coming around to look at it right now. Got it. That'll be downwind. Copter 10. Are we cleared in to pick up our coop? You're clear. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello and welcome to the show. I am your host, Jello, and this is episode 152. As you just heard, today we are discussing battling flames from the air. And our guest, Jim Barnes, will be along in a few moments. I know you'll really enjoy him, and I also know I say that every week. But first, some quick announcements and a couple listener questions. Happy September to all of you. Golly, this year keeps going faster and faster. I hope all is well in your world. And speaking of things going fast, the F-14 Tomcast already ended. You remember it began last September, and it ended with episode 26 on August 30th. I joined Crunch and Bio for that final episode to debrief how they did and what they liked and didn't like as much. And man, what a good time. So that is done for now. Who knows? Maybe they'll come back for an encore. Maybe we'll find another pilot in Rio crew to do another season. But for right now, that's it. And if you're wondering what I'm talking about, search your favorite podcast player for the F-14 Tomcast. It's evergreen content. You can still enjoy it now, even though it's pretty much over and you can make your way through the whole back catalog. Now, as previously stated, you should come join me at the Miramar Air Show here in San Diego on Saturday, September 24th. The show itself runs all weekend, but that's the day I'll be there hanging out in the Devil Dog Alley Chalet, which if you check the prices for that, it's not cheap. But if you value being show center with shade and water and food and drink and clean bathrooms, well, then you might want to come hang out with me and some family members and a few other listeners, and it should be a good time. But for those of you who don't want to do that, keep an eye on our Instagram and other social media, and I will venture out and find a good static aircraft to position myself in at some point that makes the most sense. So if there's a big C5 or something else, I'll let you know where I'll be and when. 
Now, as mentioned on the last episode, the Reno Air Races are coming up, and I will be out there on Friday and Saturday, September 16th and 17th. Man, I got a busy month coming up here. And I will be on the Jet Class ramp. It's just east of the control tower, directly across from the Freedom Flight Terminal building. And if you purchase a general admission ticket, well, that will allow you access to the Jet Class ramp. You don't need a pit pass. I'm told they're going to help me out with a tent on the ramp there, a table and a banner stand. And you might just see an aircraft in the pits there with an FPP logo on. So look for that. Look for me wearing some sort of podcast polo and uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to meet. That'll be a lot of fun. Now, speaking of the last episode, I did allude to some coming changes. And one of those, if you follow us on social media, is that we have a new social media manager on the team. And so, whereas in the past, I was doing all that and it was a lot of work, frankly. Now, if you respond and you think it's me, it might not be. And if we screw up a post or something else, not to say that the folks who are doing that are screwing it up, but hey, we're all imperfect. I certainly screwed it up. And again, it might not be me. It could be someone else. But at any rate, engage with us there. And if necessary, I'll get a chance to see it and respond personally, depending on what you post. All right. Also last episode, I said something about needing help with TARCAP. More than one listener sent me the Wikipedia definition. Thank you. Let me Google that for you. Uh, Which was target combat area patrol flown over or near a strike target in order to protect specialized attack aircraft, such as AC-130 gunships. Now, I didn't use that because, frankly, I didn't know whether to believe it. But after a couple of you sent it to me, I went ahead and forwarded it to our AC-130 episode guest, Buck, who wrote back, quote, probably a legacy term from the Vietnam days. The gunships and some other special missions had dedicated fighter protection in Vietnam, especially when they were doing interdiction on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. But I never once heard that term used in our community or during my time at the weapons school. So we do get different suggestions for terms to be added, and we're not just always going to add all of them from Wikipedia or otherwise, because we want to make sure if we do, that they are at least correct and certainly in use. Now, one final thing from last week is Billy, you might remember, asked me a question about hanging stores on the jets and how to do that. And I started rambling on because at one point I used to know how to do all that. And the one thing I forgot, Billy, there is a musing on our website all about this. So if you go to fighterpilotpodcast.com, click on musings, scroll down to the article titled Understanding the FMU 139 and its Employment Options from September 2020, well, then you can read a bunch more detail, like I said, on electrical fuses, a little bit on the M904 mechanical fuse that I mentioned, which, by the way, is obsolete now, and also, what, proximity fuses, some of the wiring, ZRFs, and all that. So anyway, Billy, hope that helps, and hope you enjoyed hearing your question answered last time. Now, we have just two listener questions this week, and they're both phone calls. Here we go with the first one. Hi, Vincent. I'm calling you from Georgia. A uh, long-time listener, thank you so much for your work on the podcast and your service with the Navy. I was wondering if you guys could talk a little bit more in deep about flight characteristics of non-classified airplanes. If you could tell us, the non-flyers, what does it feel to fly a fighter jet like an F-18? And tell us all the little differences of stick forces. Tell us how the airplane behaves, slow speeds, high speeds little intricacies that sometimes they don't get mentioned on the podcast. So I was wondering if you could guys go over 
all sorts of airplanes and talk a little bit of how performs at different speeds, uh, what are the things that you don't do on a certain airplane, what makes the airplane depart, things like that. I would really appreciate it. I'm really interested on flight characteristics and flight control systems, so I don't think it's a, it's a nerd subject, but I really appreciate it if you can talk about those subjects. Thank you so much. Have a good one. All right. Well, I didn't catch your name, so we'll just call you Georgia. I think you need to check out episode 147 there, Georgia, titled Flight Control Systems. And it featured Ken Katz and David Kern. You remember Divot? It was earlier this summer, not that long ago. And I hope that helps because otherwise, I don't really know how to answer this. I mean, how do I compare what it feels like to fly an FA-18? I don't really fly other jets other than my airliner, which you know, you're not really flying your programming. I mean, there are artificial feedback forces that are put into the stick, particularly at high speeds or high angle of attack, at least in the FA-18. I don't know. I don't play golf, but I guess like, oh, what's the difference between this club and that club? I mean, if it's a driver or a putter, I probably could figure that out. But it's definitely different than a Cessna, if that's what you're asking. And the thing is also, you don't just get in an F-18 and go fly it. You work your way up to it. In my case, I flew the T-34 Turbo Mentor, then the T-2 Buckeye, then the A-4, TA-4J Skyhawk, and then finally the F-18. And so it was incremental And with each one of those aircraft, you spent time first in a simulator, then in the jet. And for me, 100 hours in each of those as a student trying to figure out what was going on, I didn't really gain a great appreciation for stick forces and what it felt like. I just did what I had to do to hopefully pass with a decent grade to get jets. And then I got jets and started flying the thing and really didn't think about it because I just fought it and tried to put it where it needed to be. And it's funny because Ken Katz actually asked me when we were doing the segments for that episode if I wanted to talk more about it. And I said, Ken, I don't really know what else to say. I guess I'm avoiding your question there, Georgia, but it's hard to say. Maybe someone else has a better answer, but that's as good as I can get. All right, here comes another phone call, and it is related to Billy's question from last week. Hey, guys. um, This is Landon from Yukon, Oklahoma. Just wondering, on that little mount underneath the F-18 where you guys carry your fuel tanks, can that also be used for to carry a bomb or what have you? Thank you. All right, Landon, good question. And you might have not had a chance to listen to episode 151 from last week, but we did have Billy's question asking about that. And at one point, yes, in short, I did mention that the centerline pylon on F-18s is strong enough to carry a big fuel tank full of fuel, which is about 2,500 pounds. And it can also carry some bombs, but it doesn't have quite as much clearance. So you're not going to put a big 2,000 pound laser guided paveway three, let's say on the centerline station. All right. Well, that will do it for listener questions. I always enjoy getting those and we're running a little thin. So if something's been on your mind, you can submit it. And the instructions to do so is in the closing bumper by our good friend, Clint Bell coming up at the end of this episode. Now, as we get into our discussion with Jim Barnes, just two quick caveats. First, he is outside, so we get some of those usual noises that you're familiar with. And secondly, I plugged in the same microphone I'm using to talk to you right now for our interview and forgot to select it. So I'm a goof, but our producer, Bernie, did his best. So you probably won't even notice, but just like coming back from a flight, I always like to debrief my alibis up front. So there you go. Let's get to aerial firefighting with our friend, Mr. Jim Barnes. Here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, for the last 150 episodes or so, we have talked about aerial attacks that are frankly designed to start fires and take lives. 
And I don't say that flippantly, but that is the nature of war. Well, today we flip the paradigm because joining me is Mr. Jim Barnes, who spent a career dropping things to put out fires and save lives. Jim, welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, sir. Thank you, sir. Well, so let's dig into that a little bit. But first, let's start with you. Where are you from? If you have an alma mater you want to share, tell us about that and a little bit about your career. Now, I'm from Woodacre, California. That's North Bay Area, Marin County. Okay. Alma mater, not really. I graduated from Sonoma State College a long time ago. My career, in 1968, I joined the Navy and became uh, one of the last of the radial engine mechanics in the Navy. All right. So I worked on and crewed in uh, S-2 trackers and H-34 helicopters as a rescue recovery crewman. After that, I stayed in the reserve for quite a few years, went to college. I was a second-class petty officer, got my degree, went back into the Marine Corps in the PLC program, hoping to be a Marine pilot someday. Went through all that. Got through uh, 90% of flight training, and I tried it out of instruments in A-4 when I busted an A-10 check at the wrong time of the fiscal year. (laughs) So after that, my buddy got me a job flying air attack up in Rohnerville, California, way up in the northern by Eureka. So flew air attack for a couple of years in Rohnerville and Porterville. So I got to see both NorCal and uh, SoCal operations. From that, it graduated into co-pilot on a DC-4, then co-pilot on a DC-6, and after that was over with, I got into the S-2 program as an air tanker pilot. And how long did you fly that? 30 years. Oh, my goodness. I started in the radial engine S-2, the one I worked on in the Navy, and I flew the prototype of the S-2T conversion and flew that for about 10 years. So, Jim, let's start with some semantics, because I find that's always helpful. You've said air attack, you've said aerial tanking, I was calling it aerial firefighting. Do these have different meanings or are they all more or less the same thing? Air attack is the command and control ship, just as you would have a forward observer marking targets for you. We have an air attack ship with a tactical commander aboard. He's a ground firefighter and he works in concert with the incident commander on the ground and they direct our operations. Okay. How about the aerial tanker then? Is that like the attack pilot who comes in? Well, we call it air tanker. Aerial firefighting is the more preferred term, but because we always get mixed up with refuelers in the military, but we're not refuelers. (laughs) No. So Jim, why fight fires from the air? Now this may be an obvious question, but I think it begs the question. I mean, obviously you can reach places. Maybe it takes a little longer for me to get to on foot, but Just starting big picture, what's the thought here of fighting fires in forests and elsewhere from the air? Well, I liken it to uh, the Marine Corps. We're a balanced force of combined arms. Okay. And we're deployed in a tactical spread, and our principle is rapid response, initial attack. To keep a fire at or under 10 acres, you got to get out there fast. The window of opportunity is small, and we uh, provide support for our ground troops And we are very uh, essential in stopping it so they can get in there and put it out. I see. Now, the last thing I want this discussion to be, Jim, is to go sideways and talk about environmental issues. But right before humans came along, fire in forests was pretty normal. Is there any part of this that assumes, hey, we're just going to let that one go? Or is it always a function of, hey, there's a fire and if it gets too out of control, now we put people's lives and property at risk, so we're going to put out every fire. I don't have an agenda here. I just don't understand. 
that is a very valid point. And the fact is that the U.S. Forest Service and CAL FIRE always do an analysis of whether or not the fire is going to be beneficial or destructive to life and property. And we have certain initial attack areas, zones of influence, where we're going to fight the fire because people and businesses and homes are there. Mm-hmm. Out in the wildlands where there's a thousand acres of bug kill, you know, they may manage that fire and not use air resources that much, or they may modify their use. Mm-hmm. But most of what we do is protecting life and property in CAL FIRE. We do work with U.S. Forest Service. Well, I was based in Lemoore, California a number of years in the Central Valley. And of course, not a whole lot to do in the Central Valley. So sometimes we'd go west to the coast. Sometimes we'd go east up into the Sierra Nevadas. And the Sequoia National Park always had the little interactive center for the kids. And they'd always make a case that fire is actually important in some ways to uh, help the new growth and et cetera. So what you touched on, you know, before human interference, mm-hmm. natural fire would clear out the understory every five to 20 years, and we wouldn't have the intensity of fire that we have today. A mm. hundred years of successful firefighting is as important as climate change as a contributor to the terrible fires we're having now. So, yeah, there is a balance. I believe that. And that is why we're having this discussion when we are, at least here in the northern hemisphere. It's prime firefighting season. And uh, so what can you tell me about some of the history of aerial firefighting? When was it first attempted and what was involved with the way they tried to do it? Well, I could tell you about the beginnings. After World War II, they experimented with various forms of aerial application, including taking old fighters and dropping blivets full of water, which actually pretty effectively cleared the fire line, but it was lethal to the firefighters. So they didn't employ that technique in real practice. Mm -hmm. And it emerged out of the crop dusting industry, the aerial applicators. Two operations in Northern California, one in Sacramento, Red Jensen's, and one up by Willows, the Nolta family, they fielded crop duster airplanes with crop duster pilots And there were no contracts in those days for aerial air tankers. So they'd freelance, go from fire to fire, and they would get used whenever they felt it appropriate. And it was successful enough that they pursued the aerial firefighting issue further. So those same companies, initially they were with the crop dusting, but then they acquired these cast-off military aircraft, old fighters, old Navy carrier-based airplanes, different kinds of contraptions on them, tanks, whatever, with varying degrees of success. They've tanked just about everything one time or another. B-25s, P-2Vs, PV-2s, you name it. They've all had their chance at aerial firefighting. Well, and we had a conversation on this podcast about the AH-1 Cobra, and it came up that we've seen some of those in white with orange. And I'm guessing that's more of the air attack role, someone out there doing the command and control? Yeah, they definitely use it for command and control. U.S. Forest Service uses it, I know. Now we have our fleet of Blackhawk helicopters for CAL FIRE, so I'm pretty sure that's exclusively used for CAL FIRE operations. And I've seen C-130s. Aren't there even great big airplanes, 747s and the like? Yes. We have C-130s. They're painted up very pretty, but they don't have tanks in them yet. They're still working on that for CAL FIRE. We have had a lot of C-130s with U.S. Forest Service. They're very, very capable air tankers. Okay. So again, semantics maybe, but help me understand, Jim, U.S. Forest Service versus CAL FIRE. So is one a state, one is a federal? Tell me about these two agencies. 
I've worked for both agencies. CAL FIRE is unique to California. Okay. And the U.S. Forest Service is the entire country. And their missions overlap a lot. We have a lot of U.S. Forest Service operations in California. We work together a lot of times on common incidents. All right. That makes sense. Does one necessarily uh, have precedent over the other? Well, they have different jurisdictions. So in that sense, they would. But we employ mutual aid. Usually it's the closest resource, regardless of the agency, that responds to get out there in that window of opportunity to stop that fire in under 10 acres. Yeah, you said 10 acres earlier. Is that sort of the magic number if it gets bigger than that? That's the number that comes out of CAL FIRE, no. Okay. But U.S. Forest Service would have the same goals. If it's wildland urban interface, they want to get it stopped as quickly as possible. Has there ever, getting back to the aircraft, been an aircraft built particularly for aerial firefighting? There have been a few. Uh, the Canadians built the uh, CL-215 and the CL-415, oh. water scoopers. The Russians had the uh, Berev, and it was a pure jet water scooper, carried a lot of water. I think it was originally intended to bomb us with bombs, but then they changed it to an air tanker. Okay. There's been some interest in it, but for obvious reasons, they didn't go that way. Yeah. The uh, CL-215 and 415 are very effective, but their mission is to deliver water primarily. Our tankers deliver fire retardant. Yeah, well, that's what I was about to say. That's on my list anyway. So can we talk about that difference? I mean, yes. water strikes me as an unexperienced person in this as a good way to put out a fire and just, you know, having a campfire or whatever when I go. But I'm guessing someone came up with retardant because it's either more effective or maybe better for the growth afterwards. What's the purpose of retardant? Okay, well, water is a very effective tool as long as you have a close resource. Sure. Because it has to be reapplied continuously. And we apply water, obviously, with helicopters and sometimes scoopers. More often than not, in uh, California, it's going to be helicopters. Fire retardant is a phosphate, uh, gum-thickened phosphate is, I believe, what we're using now. It's many times more effective than water as far as building a fire line. Water evaporates retardant even when it's dry. As the fire impinges on the retardant, it starts to emit incombustible gases to retard the flames. It can be effective for days, actually. You can build fire line with it. You can't do that with water. Water's just going to soak in like rain. In Cal Fire, our firefighting helicopters, they're like our special forces. They drop off their hill attack team and they support them with water. It's a real force multiplier. Very effective. I'll bet. Can you tell me, Jim, as far as helicopter versus fixed wing, is it just what's available or is it the application? Obviously, I would expect an airplane can probably carry more, but what's some of the considerations or planning factors that go into rotary versus fixed wing? Well, there's a synergy between helicopters and fixed wing, and they're used very effectively in concert. You have to have a good command and control element to employ both resources at the same time. Hmm. But in many cases, helicopters are the tool. I mean, they can obviously get into places where you'd never take a fixed wing. If there's a local water source that they can exploit, that's going to be a really good thing, too. Our fixed-wing air tankers, we have several levels of capability. We have our initial attack aircraft that are deployed throughout the state. The criteria for that is they're to be over the fire within 20 minutes of the time they're dispatched. Our larger air tankers, we get into extended attack. The fires are bigger. The larger air tankers are more capable, but they may be coming from more distant bases. Mm -hmm. Once again, all these resources complement each other. 
And is there someone who's deciding maybe there's more than one fire, particularly if a dry storm comes through and there's lightning? How does someone decide which assets go where? Yeah, well, there is a a capability to triage those fires with regard to what's threatened and where they're at, what resources we have. When we have lightning fires, our resources get very thin as far as air resources. Mm -hmm. New starts usually have a priority, but it depends on where they're at. Our zone of influence, the last place I worked was Grass Valley. So we had a lot of high threat, high value property that we were protecting. So we didn't really like to get called out of there to go bomb loco weed on the plumas. You know, we wanted to be there to defend our people there. Understandable. You said earlier scoopers, and I've seen just a handful of little clips here and there. Is that just something that lands on a body of water and is able to keep flying essentially on the water and scoop it up and go? That's their advantage. They can scoop, load their tank in just a few. Actually, I don't know what the length of time is. It's under a minute. They fill their tanks. Yeah. If there's a body of water that they can exploit, then they're going to be very effective. Would that include a salt body of water? Could it use ocean? or? In some cases, yeah. Down in Los Angeles, they've had scoopers on contract. Oh, wow. Just using salt water has some deleterious effects on the forest. But yes, they do do that. If there's a lake nearby and you've got a scooper and you're fighting this fire, do you do a pass first to say everybody get out of the way and you're looking down or by then are, are there police there to, I mean, how do you know there's not people fishing or I don't know, but. Yeah, I saw the movie too. The thing is, I'm not a scooper pilot, but they have specific loading points that are approved, but they have procedures they have to go through to clear the lanes where they can scoop. I don't know how they recon I mean, they have to obviously recon. Otherwise, you could hit a shoal or something. We've had scoopers crash. A friend of mine crashed a scooper down in Southern California. He hit a shoal or something and went upside down and backwards. They both lived through it. Plane didn't. (laughs) That's the way I'd prefer it if there's going to be a mishap. This is obscure. Bear with me. Have any of the folks on the ground ever reported a scooper came by and dropped his load? And lo and behold, a couple fish end up on the... uh, Fire line? Has that ever been? Well, that makes a nice story, but the scooping (laughs) hole is about less than six inches big, so you're not going to get a very large fish. (laughs) There probably have been. Yeah. Isn't there some story about a bucket or something that picked up a scuba diver and dropped him on a fire? I don't know. Maybe that's just old wives' tale, but... Yeah, I think that's a good story. I don't believe it ever existed in reality. (laughs) All right. Let's just stick with the state of California, since that sounds like your expertise. What aircraft are being used today? Let's stick with modern firefighting now. Things have changed drastically since I've been out of it. We have a lot of airliners that have been converted to air tankers, and some of them have been very effective. We still have our fleet of S2s, which is really important for the tactical spread and the 20-minute response and uh, get out there and hit it hard fast. Mm -hmm. But we have the 146 that's... uh, British airplane. Very good air tanker. They're using 737s now. A couple of friends of mine are flying MD-87s. They gave me the DC-10 pilots. They actually hit some trees on one of their first drops, like 13 of them. They weren't even really aware that they'd hit them, but they damaged their airplane. So they put the brakes on. They said, okay, you guys are going to have to fly with tanker pilots. So I got one of them. Super great guy, clawed his way up through the trash haulers with Evergreen and companies like that and was flying the DC-10. Great pilot, and there was no blueprint for what they were trying to do with the big airplanes like that. Mm -hmm. By gosh, they went out there and figured it out, and now they're a very good capability. 
You're not going to see a DC-10 on the 10-acre fire in front of your house. You'll probably see a 2S2s in a helicopter, but when you need a DC-10 or even a 747, I watched a 747 save an entire community with one drop up by Grass Valley. Without him, we wouldn't have been able to hold the fire. How many gallons of retardant can a 747 carry? Is that, I've got to think, quite a bit. Once again, I'm not a 747 pilot, but it's got to be like 10,000 gallons or something. I flew a DC-6 and it held 3,000. And so when you flew that, Jim, you're not a scooper. So you go land. I don't know if it's back at your home base or wherever you land, but are you just going to sit in the airplane turning while they refill you or how does that work? We hot load. We sit there with the engines running. It usually takes four or five minutes to get it loaded. Now we're back heading for the runway. Okay. The bases are deployed in such a way that there's a 20-minute response area to almost any fire in our responsibility area throughout the state. Sometimes two bases will support one fire or more. Mm-hmm. That's a command and control issue to be sure, but the resources come from every available base, and sometimes they don't come from anywhere because the uh, air tankers have been stripped so thin that we don't have anything. That's happened on some occasions. Are these purely government aircraft, or are there contractors that provide services to the government? Well, they're both. It was uh, CAL FIRE. These are formerly Navy aircraft. They're still owned technically by the U.S. government. CAL FIRE is the custodian, and they contract for maintenance and flight crews. Okay. But if you and I, Jim, wanted to start Jim and Vincent's firefighting service, could we contract ourselves to the government, or does it not work that way? We better have a huge bonding capability to do that. You know, in the old days, that's the way it was. A mom and pop bolt a tank onto something and hire some guy to go try to drop on fires. But today, they put out what they call a request for proposal, and it spells out exactly what a company has to have to even be able to bid on it. And it's pretty extensive. Okay. They're much bigger companies now. So I wanted to ask you earlier, if you could get a load of uh, retardant in a few minutes in your DC-6, I think you said, is that something you keep track of? Like, do you just go for hours and you lose track? Or do you remember a flight where you had, what, seven or eight or 10? Or how many refills have you done? Well, with a DC-6, it's not going to be that many because you're going to run out of gas pretty soon. Okay. We only carried about three hours of gas in the six and wet alternates. Okay. I've dropped as many as 22 loads of retardant in a day in an S2, though. Wow. Because it obviously doesn't take us that long to refuel. Can we talk about the execution itself? And I'm not even sure where to begin. So here it is, as you and I are recording this in August of 2022, you're retired now, but I assume there are others that are they on a call of some sort or they have other jobs, but let's start with the people. And I want to get back to the training of these people. But for right now, let's just say if somebody's on call, are they at the airport? Are they at home? Are they at another job? Or where are these people and how ready are they? They're in their flight suits, sitting at the airport. Their airplanes are pre-flighted, cocked, and ready to go. They should be able to be in the air within 15 minutes of initial dispatch. It's usually less than that. So that's like an alert 15 on my carrier. I was in my gear in the ready room. The jet was cocked and loaded. And when the bell sounded, I ran up to the flight deck and jumped in and went. It's exactly the same thing. Okay. That's from, what, June to October? The seasons vary from different regions, of course. Mm -hmm. Ours usually started May-June and went through the end of October, sometimes end of the winter. The fire seasons are getting longer, obviously. It was different when I was younger and first started. So let's say that call comes. 
and the folks that you just mentioned got jump in the airplane and go. What does it look like? So again, for me on my F-18, I would get a vector for the direction of the threat and I would have someone to talk to. So are you getting information real time and who are you talking to? It's exactly the same way. We'll have a heading, a distance, and a contact. Our air attack ship will go out with us. Usually he'll get off the ground and it's an OB-10. So we're about the same speed with the S-2. Okay. Yeah, we all arrive there and get in touch with the ground incident commander, formulate a plan and start working. So one of the joys I have in this job as a podcaster, Jim, is I get to ask dumb questions and pretend I'm doing it for someone else, but really it's for me. So if I'm in this position and I see a direction and I see smoke out there, I can't just roll in and say, oh, there's smoke. I'm an aerial firefighter. I'm just going to bomb it with my retardant. So that's not what you do is what you're telling? Not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. It's very strictly regulated. Now, you need three clearances, but you need a clearance somewhere between 12 and 7 miles just to enter the fire control area. Okay. We have a fire control area now. And it all started when two friends of mine crashed into each other over a fire and were both killed. So we decided what we were doing wasn't working. We used to call three minutes out and everybody just show up. Now it, you call and let them know and they clear you in or tell you where to hold. You come in at a holding altitude, orbit altitude, and you don't get cleared down to drop altitude until the air attack ship clears you down there. And then you must be cleared to drop. And that cleared to drop instruction happens when you roll base to final and you make sure you're cleared to drop. You're not cleared to drop in the downwind of the base usually. They don't want people down there in your target area if they can help it. It sounds like close air support in the uh, military world there. Jim. So very similar. You have to have clearances. You stack up the aircraft. Now, how about when you are in your S2, let's say, and you're talking to everybody, are there certain procedures that are the same regardless of the fire as far as you always want to attack from, I don't know, upwind or downwind or crosswind maybe? But obviously the smoke is a big part of that. But is every fire different or are there some things you can do the same? There are the typical fires, you know, the origin, right flank, left flank, head. Those are typical. Okay. We get a lot of atypical fires. The one thing that we don't do is drop up steep slopes. We don't do that. Okay. But other than that, you may be asked to drop upwind, downwind, crosswind, whatever the case may be. And when you're doing that, obviously you're thinking about where your retardant is going, just like I used to try to get the best hit with my bomb. Yeah. Although I suppose you have some forgiveness and because it's an aerial weapon in a sense. But just from the point of view of the pilot, is there a particular modification to the aircraft to drop the retardant or does the co-pilot do that or how does that work? Yeah, the captain drops the retardant. You know, there's a button on your wheel. Just like a pickle button. Yes. Those uh, systems are now computer controlled. So we can set a coverage level. We can drop a quarter of it. We can drop half of it. We can drop the whole thing. Oh. If it's light grass, we're going to use a light coverage level to make a long, narrow line. If it's heavy timber, we're going to use all of it, you know, like coverage level eight or whatever, six, what we had. But unlike your bombs and rockets, retardant has no ballistic characteristics. It's like dropping parachutes. So you have to be able to read the wind and compensate accordingly. Are there some degrees of skill involved? Like I was a terrible bomber when I was flying A4s. That's almost what washed me out, Jim. You said it was your instrument check. For me, it was almost dropping bombs. I couldn't hit the target for the life of me. But is there some skill required? Did you have friends that were better than others? Or 
Well, usually you start out with no skill at all, like like you say. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Hey, we had our sharpshooters like you do in the Navy. Uh-huh. We got guys that can thread a needle with that stuff. I was very happy to be an average tanker pilot just to stay okay. with that pack I felt was pretty good. But some people can read the wind every time and never miss. Wow, That's hard to do. And some people can use the wind to shape a drop, to wrap a drop around the head just by pulling up at, at a specific location and the retardants in the wind a little longer and it wraps around the head. I've seen some people have got so much skill in doing that. I never did quite figure out how he did it, but I tried. <laughs> That's where science becomes art, right? Yeah, it is. So if I'm dropping bombs in close air support, I don't want to get too close to my friendlies on the ground. If I'm on the ground with a pick and a shovel and you come by and drop retardant on me, is it going to knock me over or just be a nuisance? Or how big a deal is it to the folks on the ground? Ideally, the forward motion of the retardant should stop before it hits the ground. Ideally. Okay. But things are rarely ideal. It's awful hard to tell exactly how high you are above the ground with irregular terrain. The responsibility for not killing people on the ground is yours. I've refused drops where we had crews underneath power lines. I wasn't going to do that one. It's not that the air attack wasn't telling me to drop two, but they would query me. Can you do this? And you have to say, no, I can't do it. You know, what I worried about were you can bust out tree limbs and have them fall on the troops. So, And we work very close to the tree. With the hill attack teams, I've rolled up hill attack teams more often than once. It's just that they are, like I say, they're the special forces. They're right there in the battling the flames at the fire's edge, and you're trying to support them. And sometimes you're going to nail them. Mm-hmm. They could get hurt. Their directive is when they hear a tanker coming, get down on the ground, face the drop, get your tools positioned so they don't smash you in the head, you know, that kind of thing. So there are safety precautions, but there is an element of risk in every drop. Of course. So you show up, you talk to someone, you wait your turn, you do your pass or two or three. I had no idea that you could vary the amount and the spread. That's pretty interesting. So if you are, I don't know if you had terminology for it, but if you're bingo or Winchester, I might call it, then you tell the controller and they'll clear your back to go get more, essentially. Yeah, they're going to know when you're Winchester because it's all going to be out on the ground, you know. (laughs) So uh, you might have a half a tank left or something. You just tell them your status. They'll tell you what to do. Okay. And then you go back and get more whatever you need and come back and check back in. Yeah, there's somebody in line right behind you, usually. It's like a bucket brigade. And is this all done verbally, like, or is there any sort of link? Like in our world now, we're starting to get these fancy link systems where we can text messages, in a sense, to each other. Is all this verbal? It was all verbal in my environment. And things have advanced since I've been there. When I first started, we didn't even have a directional gyro in our airplanes. We had one VOR, and the primary nav aid was the smoke column. You fly this heading till you see smoke. <laughs> now they have some pretty good GPS systems, yeah, which is really good if you're going to lightning fire, because when you're going to 100 fires, it was awful hard to pick out which one was yours. But with GPS, they mark your fire, and you go right to it. It's a big safety plus, too. For the reason you described earlier, which is you don't want two aircraft coming at each other, and you unfortunately lost friends that way. We've had many close calls, and I've lost two friends in that situation. So dumb question number 37, is this daytime only, or will you go out at night? It's daytime only, except that if the air attack is on scene, we can be there a certain number of minutes after sundown. It's still light, but usually you have to have been to the fire before, and there has to be an air attack ship 
on scene. Okay. I was an initial attack captain. All of our guys are, which means I can go to a fire, and if there's nobody there, then I can size it up and take whatever action I think is going to be beneficial. But if somebody's there, I have to get clearance to come in. If I'm the first tanker in and nobody else is there, then the next tanker in has to have me clear them in before they can come in. So we borrowed a lot from military. We have a lot of military pilots. So we borrowed a lot from the kind of work you folks do. And it's really been beneficial. It used to be a free-for-all. You know, when I started out, tanker flying was the most toxic culture you could ever be involved in. Maybe only crop dusting being worse, but you know, I thought that was wonderful when I got out of the Navy and I got into a program where there were no rules. I thought that was great. But then we started going to funerals about once every other year. Mm-hmm. And so we realized that no, it wasn't so great. We had to modernize. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. Speaking of pilots, I said I wanted to get back to that. Where do most of aerial firefighting pilots come from? Do they work their way up? You talked about the trash haulers. You were uh, an attrition, I suppose, from the military. But do some guys, like I got out of the military and went to the airlines. Could I have just as easily come and gotten a job with CAL FIRE? Yes. Air tanker pilots come from all walks of aviation, including foul balls like me. But the best background you can have for a tanker pilot is either aerial application, crop dusting, or military tactical pilots, because it's all energy management, situational awareness, all the things you need to do the job you do. Maybe not quite as intense, because we're not being shot at usually. But the two gentlemen that taught me how to fly S2s, one was a Navy commander named Narch McKinley. He was a multi-engine guy, flew almost everything in the inventory, including C-130s and Operation Deep Freeze. So he was one of my instructors. The other was an Air Force colonel named Buzz Blaylock, who was a jet fighter pilot like yourself. And he flew air commandos in uh, A-1E Sky Raiders. I guess it was A-1W Sky Raider in Vietnam for the Special Forces. Most of these guys had 20 years in air tankers, and they really helped keep us alive. I'll bet. In fact, we were losing an S-2 pilot about every other year, and about a quarter of them were Navy S-2 pilots. Couldn't figure out, you know, this little simple training airplane, easy to fly. uh, Why was it so lethal? And it was just the fact that they were flying it too slow. Coming aboard the ship at 100 knots or less, uh, well, that's a steady state maneuver. Typically, you try to do it like you're landing on a runway, a downwind, a base, and a final, and then drop. Hard to do in the middle of a mountain slope with wind and flames. So they were flying it too slow and we had stall accidents uh, usually between the base and the final and they were all fatal 
and we found out that they were flying the airplane too slow. We got it up to the single engine safety speed, VYSE, best single engine rate of climb. Mm-hmm. As long as you're dropping above that, if you toss an engine, you'll probably make it out. Well, and you said something I think is interesting, right? When you're landing, like you said, it's fairly controlled in the runway. You might have some wind and maybe even wind shift or wind shear, but in the environment where you're fighting fires, you've got, like you said, the terrain that can be very steep, but also the fire itself, right? Doesn't it sort of create its own weather in a sense? Maybe not weather is not the right word, but you've got thermals, you've got wind. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. The convection column, if you accidentally get caught up in it, it'll take you an eight-ticket ride right up to the top. (laughs) And I've done that a couple of times, not on purpose, but that's when you start instrument flying. (laughs) I bet. All right, so let's say I got out of the Navy and came to an organization where you were, Jim, and you were already an established aerial firefighter, but I was just showing up with wet behind the ears. What would I do to become qualified? Well, you're about 80% of the way there right now because of your background. But what you need to do, tanker flying is a fairly close-knit community. You have to sort of get your foot in the door, networking to know the people. They get to know who you are. We've had a lot of people from your background that are tanker pilots today. We got a Marine colonel down in uh, Hemet. He was a fighter pilot like yourself. He went to the Top Gun School. I'm sure you probably went there. I did. He's a magnificent air tanker pilot today, and he's still very, he's active down there, and you might want to talk to him sometime. (laughs) Maybe we could bring him on. Okay, so I show up, I probably get some training and some familiarization ride. Is a lot of it OJT and uh, right seat with an experienced captain, maybe? It used to be. When I had 20 hours after my type rating, they patted me on the head and sent me out, and if I survived (laughs) my first year, then I was in the running. Oh, geez. Now, regardless of what your background is, whether you're a Marine colonel or a commercial pilot, flight instructor, you're going to spend two fire seasons with somebody in the right seat. Just like flight school, every run is evaluated. Anything that might have killed us gets special attention. <laughs> I would say. I spent 10 years doing that. You've done a lot of instructing, so you know that's the most exciting flying you get to do with somebody else's driving. Yeah. Do you ever have people that think they want to do it and turns out they don't? Yep. That usually happens pretty fast. Yeah, I'll bet. Most of the people from your background get in there and they go, man, I was born for this. This is what I want to do. (laughs) So, Well, it doesn't sound like it's that different the more we talk. You need to come up to our uh, aerial firefighters meeting in Reno this December and meet some of these guys. And uh, maybe you want to try your hand at it. (laughs) I don't know if my wife or my other activities would allow me to do anything else at this point, Jim, but at the very least, I hope we do them proud. So if I do show up, they'll all thank me for this discussion that we're having because yeah, you don't hear too much about what you guys do, but it's important and you're saving lives and property. What about currency? Now, you said when you started, the fire season was fairly short. These days, it's getting longer for various reasons. But if it's January here in the Northern Hemisphere and I haven't fought a fire in a few months. What else am I doing? But also, what do I need to do before my first fire in June or whenever? You're going to come to recurrent training. That's going to be about 10 hours of intensive training, almost all emergencies and fire dropping on targets, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, We do a lot of emergencies less than 200 feet above the ground, Mm -hmm. engine failures, Mm -hmm. you name it, runaway trim, whatever we can cook up. Pretty intense. So by the time you get through that, you're pretty much ready to go to fire season. 
So do aerial firefighter pilots have a second career, generally speaking, or do they have, like teachers get the summer off, do they get the winter off? A lot of them do. I had a dear friend. In fact, he was one of my students. He was a Navy P3 pilot. He was also a chemistry professor down at University of California in Santa Cruz. So he flew tankers during the summer and taught school during the... <laughs> he taught the firefighters at the tanker base. He helped them with their college courses. Unfortunately, we lost him on a fire down in uh, Yosemite. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And so will people make a career of it, provided they don't have a mishap? Or is it too stressful? I mean, you made a career of it. Do a lot of people stay? I did, but it wasn't a career when I started. Okay. It was a one-year-at-a-time avocation. Yeah, I dug sewers during the wintertime to support my tanker pilot habit. You know, we made almost no money. We had no benefits and no rehire rights, really. Really? Uh, We were employees at will. Then a couple of us troublemakers decided to pursue forming a union. And when we did that, everything changed. Mm -hmm. So now it's comparable to an airline career, except that if your airplane suffers some fatal airframe problem, and the airplane goes away, so do you. Ah. Because there isn't anything else to fly. Dare I ask, a gentleman is not supposed to, but are these pilots fairly well compensated or? They are now. Okay. When I started, a large part of my compensation was unemployment insurance. Wow. I was making about as much money as a limited term base engineer, but I had no benefits. He did. So the pilots down in SoCal, they're probably doing better than most airline pilots. I know they are. But that was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and hard work getting the union through. Okay. And, of course, getting the S2T. We were a junkyard Air Force. We were flying some real garbage. And when we finally got the S2T, and they put state-of-the-art engines. The S2 is a great airplane, carrier-based, right? So it's built for stout. And the 1820 was wonderful. And it saved my life many times. But it was designed in 1936. And you could count on blowing up an engine every other fire season. Sounds like a grenade went off in your nacelle out there. We put turboprop engines. I was a second pilot to fly the prototype, and I flew it for several years, and that's what brought the S2T into fruition. Did they leave the tail hooks on, or did they take them off? No. No, they're just <laughs> excess weight. That's right. Sometimes I wish they'd left them on, because <laughs> landing in Columbia and Grass Valley can be pretty challenging at times. I have a listener who's become a friend from Grass Valley, so I hope he's listening to this so that he can appreciate what you all do in that area and, and really every area. Jim, I didn't tell you I was going to ask this, and I don't even know what to call them. Aren't there people that jump out of airplanes to go fight fires, and is that associated with... Smoke jumpers. Smoke jumpers. Is that affiliated with what you do, or is that totally different? Well, we work in concert with them on occasion. They're with the U.S. Forest Service, mostly. Are they jumping out of your airplanes or some other special airplane? No. They have a special... I don't know which one they're using now. They're like short sky vans, that kind of thing. I don't know what type aircraft they're using now, but boy, they are a heroic bunch of people. They dump them out into uh, primitive areas with nothing but a backpack and some hand tools, and they go to work fighting the fire. Wow. I mean, what you have is what you get. So I got to think they're loaded up with water. and They're not loaded up with too much water. No? They carry backpacks and... Hand tools. Okay. Their water comes from air support, usually. You get resupplied right away. They can get air tankers. Some places you can't even use air. You can't use air tankers in uh, Yosemite unless it's a threat to life. The park, you know. Right. The uh, smoke jumpers, right? Don't they have also some sort of 
think I heard this somewhere, right? Didn't we lose a bunch of them in this particular fire that shifted, but they have these blanket things they can hide under? Fire shelters. I've been on fires where they've deployed their fire shelters, and that's a scary situation. That's like pulling the handle in my ejection seat aircraft, right? I mean, if you're doing that, it's all about survival at that point. It's purely survival, and you're in the hands of God when you do that. I've been on fires where people were in shelters. We lost one young man who was in his shelter. Our tanker pilots were dropping directly on their deployment. Two friends of mine did the drops. I probably saved them. But one of them was outside the drop area, and he burned to death. Wow. I don't think the S-2 had ejection seats when it was on Navy aircraft, but I assume it might have had parachutes. Do any aerial firefighters wear parachutes or anything? (laughs) I had a friend who wore one. He's an old Marine OV-10 pilot. Mm -hmm. But, you know, none of the rest of us wore them because you're going to bail out at 200 feet. I don't think it's going to be successful. But he always wore one. But if you were with him, to be a gentleman, he would leave his home. He wouldn't wear a suit if you were in there without one. Okay. Oh, boy, Jim. This has uh, been very entertaining. I have some listener questions I want to throw at you, if I may, because uh, the folks that help support the show, they get this as a perk at a certain tier. So these are our strike leads and above, as we call them. The first is from Nick Forster, appropriately named. He says, is there much of a trim change as the retardant or the water is released? So when you're flying your aircraft and you release everything, what happens in the airplane? That's a good question because it varies a lot with the type of airplane you're flying. Okay. With the original S-2, and even when it was a Navy torpedo bomber, there was quite a pitch up when you released the weapon or when you released retardant. And how much depended on your speed and load factor. And sometimes it could be a little bit alarming, but most of the time it just helped you uh, soar above the uh, immovable objects you were trying to avoid. Some of the newer air tankers, This process is going to probably weed itself out to where there's a preferred type. But right now we have a lot of different jets Mm -hmm. flying. Some of them really show a lot of promise. One of them, two of my friends are flying it. They were two of the very best tanker pilots in the whole industry. And while the pilot was dropping, the co-pilot was running the trim, the entire drop. As you know, I don't know how that system works, but if you could exceed your ability to control the airplane if the trim quits at the wrong time. Yikes. Oh, boy. It's like the MD-80. Well, you're familiar with the aircraft at Oxnard. A friend of mine was a pilot on that thing the day before it. They lost control of it, and it crashed, and that was the screw jack in the trim problem. They lost vertical control of the aircraft. We're using the same system in an air tanker now, so that would be a matter of major concern for me, but I didn't have that problem in the S-2. There was video, it's probably been five years now, maybe you remember, of a C-130 that was doing a drop, and all of a sudden it looked like the wing just had a structural failure. Do you remember that one? Yeah, I sure do. That was a friend of mine. In fact, he was due to quit that job and come to work with us in the S-2s, but he didn't quit soon enough. The NTSB investigator that investigated that crash was a friend of mine. He went out and he found the point of failure. Really? We'd had another 130 come apart down by Pear Blossom in SoCal. And there were a lot of theories about dry bay fuel leaks and all kinds of things. Well, this inspector found the point of failure, took it back to the lab, and determined it was intergranular corrosion. This C-130 was built in 1958. And the other one that crashed was of the same vintage. So these airplanes were ancient, and they were made out of 
the 7075 T6 alloy, which has got zinc in it and very susceptible to intergranular corrosion. All right, back to the questions. Nick Forrester has a second one. He says, do pilots use 1 to 50K maps for terrain awareness and target acquisition? Of course, again, we talked about looking out the window and seeing the smoke, but there could be more than one. These days, right, in my F-18, I've got digital maps and everything, an iPad. What did you have then, and what are they using now? Well, back in the old days, we used sectionals. Okay. Yeah, we didn't carry like 10,000-meter grid square maps or anything. We carried regular aeronautical sectionals or a whack chart, and it was up to you to figure out where this thing was, you know. But as time went on, then we got the GPS, which is incredible. It's nothing compared to what you guys have, but for us, it was space-age stuff. So I think they've even upgraded to a better GPS now. Listener Matt McDonough would like to know how much air work these pilots do to practice formation flying and rapid complex rejoins. He continues, most casual observers probably fixate on the terminal part of the attack, i.e. the actual drop of the water or retardant. But personally, I think the most impressive airmanship is seen in the way that the lead or spotter aircraft quickly gets each tanker on their wing and into the next attack run. Is this as challenging as it seems? And before you even answer that, Jim, I just assumed you were doing everything as a single aircraft, but are there formation parts of this story? Well, we don't call it formation, but in effect, it is formation. Wow. With the U.S. Forest Service, they have lead planes. They do their mission a little differently. It is very effective, especially when you're leading, when you're dropping a lot of different types of aircraft. My formation training in the Navy helped me quite a bit with that. We also did formation drops. Up at Grass Valley on the 49er fire, we followed a lead plane, and he would rendezvous with us and get five S2s formed up on his tail, and we go in nose to tail, just far enough apart to where we didn't dump retardant on the uh, airplane behind us, and he'd lead us through like a train, and we'd drop retardant that way, build a line that way. <laughs> My goodness. A lot of that formation, as you would, we didn't use the word formation. A lot of it was kind of on-the-job training. Okay. But to your point earlier, people coming to this, some of them are coming from the military where they've had these experiences. And to Matt's question, these are probably things they've done before anyway. But bottom line is you've got folks that are being trained how to do these things and they figure out how to get it done. Yeah, We train uh, how to follow leads in primary training. One of us will act as a lead plane. The other one will follow us in formation. Part of the job was is to try to lead the other tanker into a place where they really shouldn't be so that they could make the decision to break away before they got trapped in a canyon or something. Hmm. But when I flew with our dear friend Hoser, the Navy F-14 pilot, we went everywhere in formation. <laughs> is that right? I was based with him out of Grass Valley. What was his real name again? Joe Satrapa, Commander Joe Satrapa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we lost him recently, not to a mishap, I don't think. Well, no, he passed away from natural causes. He was a Vietnam-era fighter jock, F-8s, F-4s. Okay. You guys don't switch airplanes as often as they... He flew vigilantes for photo recon and went back into fighters, ended up being uh, an icon in the F-14 community. I've heard of him. I just don't know very much about him. He retired, and that's where I met. I was a co-pilot on a DC-6 at Chico, and he was a brand-new air attack pilot. And that's where we met. <laughs> All right. Uh, Scott Manning wants to know, what are the flying qualities of a 747 or DC-10 at the altitudes necessary 
to fight fires. Now, if you didn't fly those, maybe you can speak to the DC-6 or if you had friends who did. But you said earlier it's like setting up for a landing, which mm-hmm. is a somewhat tumultuous time in a big airplane. But again, with terrain and all the different thermals and wind shifting, I don't know. I can't claim any knowledge or expertise about flying a DC-10 or a 747. The DC-6 I flew was 100,000 pounds, and it had 2,800s on it, and it didn't have a lot of ability to go up with a load on Okay. Because we're flying down at 130 knots, very little G available, so you had to plan your drop pretty carefully. The 747 pilot that I know... The thing that was hard for them, they said, we don't have to drop the load. This plane has so much power. If we have a problem, we don't have to drop the load. We'll just add power. I said, yeah, but you really don't want to add power and pitch up because you're going to put your tail down 50 feet. I watched the DC-7 pull its tail off in the trees. I didn't actually see it. I saw the crash, and then I orbited his crash. But he was trying to pull up. The main body of the airplane went through, but the tail didn't make it. So when we jettison the airplane comes up like an elevator because now you've got thousands of pounds of lift instead of weight so it just comes up that was the big thing the dc-10 pilot i flew with that i told you about hit the 13 trees he spent about 10 15 hours of me and another pilot and he was a great s2 pilot except he tried to land it 50 feet in the air he wasn't used to flying a small airplane anymore you know it's hard to translate what they have to deal with with what i did Okay. I can't go there because I've never been there. Like you said, I'll have to get to Reno and meet some of these folks in December, sounds like. All right, a listener, supporter named Snowy, not very appropriate, I suppose, to this discussion, but at any rate, would love to hear about the air-to-ground comms. So we've talked earlier, Jim, about close air support, and in close air support, we use what's called a nine line, right? And every line has a particular meaning. It's the target, the distance, the offset, the friendlies, et cetera. Did you use some sort of standardized terminology with your air attack folks? We do. We have tactical frequencies that are assigned. They're on FM. I understand you can listen to them on the computer somehow. I don't know how to do that. But as far as phraseology, the standard terms would be you're cleared in, you're cleared to maneuvering altitude, you're cleared to drop, load and return, that kind of thing. We don't have a lot of real fancy terminology. It's pretty clear text. Now, here's a fun question. Sean Jones says, is it worth it? And how do we measure effectiveness? I loved every minute of it. And anytime you felt like you were helping save somebody's house or help our firefighters on the ground, there was a huge amount of gratification with that. Mm. And the people that I worked with were so great. The other air tanker pilots and the helicopter pilots uh, just a wonderful cadre of people. Like you would have in your squadrons, there was a real esprit de corps. Right. Great people. And I enjoyed fighting fire. And is it worth it? It depends on how bad you want to fight fire. It's not for everybody. It's just like your job. It's not for everybody. Right. If I can read a little more into his question, Jim, and not to take away from your answer, thank you, but maybe his point is, right, taxpayers are paying for this. Oh, I see. You've lost friends, right? So in other words... For the amount of money and effort and lives, is it worth it from the point of view of, is it that effective versus just making folks go out there with trenches and shovels or fire trucks where they can get? That's, I guess, what I think he's thinking. And the best person to ask that question would be a firefighter on the ground. Okay. The feedback that I've gotten for 30 years is, yes, it's worth it. Okay. When they need help, they need help badly. Mm-hmm. 
we are very effective. Rapid response initial attack is our best mission. If we can get out there and hit it hard, hit it fast, and stop it and hold it, then the cost that it would have incurred had it gone to an extended attack fire could probably pay for the whole air program in one year. Some of these devastating fires, the costs are just extreme. And we used to be on a shoestring budget, undercapitalized companies contracting junkyard airplanes with low-paid pilots. I don't know, it probably wasn't worth it to us, but we still seem to get a lot of gratitude from the firefighters we work for. Today, I would say it's more than worth it. We really probably need to enlarge the air program. We need to increase all firefighting assets Okay. with the gathering threats that we're facing today. But I would say definitely it's worth it. And I would really protested getting rid of the 747. I, I thought that was a capability that we really should have. The DC-10 is very close to that and very, very worth it, in my view. Joe Kunzler wants to know, how is it that an aircraft becomes a fire bomber? And I'm not necessarily sure if he means which aircraft are earmarked for it or what happens to the aircraft when it gets there. So let's assume an aircraft becomes available and there's a company out there, I assume, that will paint it and modify it. What modifications does it require? Well, that went through a huge evolution, too, because as I told you before, they'd take whatever cast off military aircraft or transport that they could come up with and uh, nail a tank onto it and some Rube Goldberg system to drop the retardant. And that's what it was. And some of them ended in uh, catastrophe. But today we have aeronautical engineers. My dear friend who was our chief maintenance officer, Dave Wardall, an aeronautical engineer, and he helps design conversions for air tank. He helped design the S2T okay. after the initial airplane was put together, he improved it to the extent that the capability that it is now. It's serious business now. It used to be a Burton Ernie Rube Goldberg operation, but it's far from that now. Well, my last listener question is from George Bravo, who says, do you see any former law enforcement helicopter pilots enter the aerial firefighting world? And in parentheses, he adds, I'm trying to keep my options open for when I retire in less than five years. We still got a highway patrol officer flying air attack out of Grass Valley, as far as I know. Great guy. Our whole helicopter program was run by the retired highway patrol officers who are also National Guard pilots. Okay. So they were wonderful. They had a lot of military experience, of course, but they were highway patrol officers. Well, Jim, we're almost done. I want to ask you if you could snap your fingers, wave a magic wand, whatever, and maybe there's no answer to this, but what would be the perfect aerial firefighting aircraft, and what would be the perfect pilot as far as experience and background? Obviously, one that's been doing it for 30 years is probably the perfect. But from the point of view of the airplane, for example, you said your S3 carried, or your DC-6 maybe was, what, 3,000 gallons, and a 747 is maybe 10, but the 747 is bigger. It's probably harder to get into certain places, probably longer to refill, so a longer gap between. So describe for me the perfect airplane and the perfect person for fighting fires from the air? <laughs> well, you have to let, as you well know, the mission has to define what the aircraft capability is going to be. Rapid response initial attack, you probably want an airplane that you can field out in the, deploy in the area of threat on small runways. The S-2 is perfect for that. You get large, uh, some of the terrible fires that we've had in recent history, the bigger, the better. The 747, the DC-10s do a magnificent job. There is no perfect 
piece of apparatus that's going to be the answer to all our firefighting problems. The most perfect firefighting tool is that individual firefighter with his hand tools and his hose down there battling the flames at the fire's edge. Personality-wise, we couldn't be a more diverse group of people. Stellar performers, uh, fighter jocks like you, down to old crop duster pilots and old trash hauler pilots from the uh, airlines. It's a diverse group of people, but they all seem to do a perfect job to me. Yeah. It's a team effort. Oh, no doubt. I don't doubt that at all there, Jim. But the perfect pilot, the one ingredient I would say that you must have is what you have, and it's a warrior's mentality. I would refine that to say firefighter's mentality. Yeah. You have to want to be able to operate in under some fairly extreme conditions. And if you're not up to that, then you won't be perfect for the job, no matter how good a pilot you are. You know, Jim, one thing I learned in a quarter century in the military, which is very serious business and very dangerous, is that paradoxically, it makes for some really funny experiences like humor. I don't know if it's a coping mechanism or whatever. And I just wonder, in your extensive career fighting fires, was there any particular moment that just stands out as particularly somewhat either comical or, or humorous? You've shared a few unfortunate and tragic stories of friends lost, but any just good humorous stories from your times? Okay, we talked about Hoser. Okay. The Navy fighter pilot, Hoser. Yeah. He ended up my co-pilot on an antiquated DC-4 that we were taking from Tucson to North Carolina to fight fires. And that thing was a derelict sitting in a field for years. And it was our job to go down there and make it run. So we didn't have any mechanics. So I got this Top Gun Navy instructor. He's my co-pilot now in this DC-4. It was a questionable operation for the whole time. I won't go through the whole thing, but we didn't get all the water out of the fuel. Ooh. And somewhere over tech, Hosier had a plan. He was going to drop leaflets over Gainesville, uh, over some political issue. I think it was the Waco thing. So he was out and back dropping a thousand leaflets over Gainesville when my first engine quit. Oh. He came running up into the cockpit and said, Jimmy, talk to me. What's going on? I said, I don't know, Hose. I can't seem to keep all the engines running in this thing. Now, we had one fuel gauge that worked and all the fuel selectors leaked. So it was always an Easter egg hunt for fuel anyway. We didn't know where it was going. So I said, okay, Hoser, here's the plan. You're going to call ATC to get us a vector to Sherman Field, and we're going to stay high because I don't know how long I'm going to keep all these engines running. So he did that, and we came into Sherman at about 6,000 feet above ground elevation. I was going to do like the old typical high-key, low-key approach. Uh -huh. I had 40 hours in the airplane. Hoser had zero hours. <laughs> So I looked over at his control panel, and the fuel gauges all said zero. So I pushed forward on the throttles, and there was no engines running. So I couldn't do the high key, low key, so I turned toward the nearest runway, which was the wrong runway, and just said, hold the flaps, gear down. We're way above gear speed. And we did like a flamed out 106 approach into this field in Sherman, Texas. As we neared, the DC-4 is a magnificent airplane, as long as you don't have to go up. It's a big glider, you know. <laughs> so as we're rounding out and the speed's getting lower, I mean, I know the wing's going to hang on till 80 knots. And Hoser looks at me and goes, shit, we're not going to make it. And I, about 30 expletives later, assured him that we were going to make it, you know. And we touched down. And when we did, 
number three engine started, which gave us hydraulic power. So now I had brakes and nose wheel steering. So we taxied up onto the taxiway right next to the plane we'd been flying with. And we got out and the other captain walked over to me. He said, God damn, I lost an engine over at Gainesville. <laughs> I said, big blank and deal. I lost all four. And Hoser said, yeah. And he told me to shut up and die like a man. And I, I didn't say that, but it sounded so good. I wish I had. Hauser was not only one of the greatest fighter pilots and one of the greatest tanker pilots, he was also one of the funniest. Oh, boy. And he was always coming up with stuff like that. <laughs> Do you ever watch Commander Ward Carroll's podcast on the F-14? Oh, yeah, he's a friend of ours. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, he did a tribute to Hoser. So if you want to find out more about Hoser, watch his podcast. Okay. Yeah, I think they might have been peers, or at least he was, uh, Mooch was a little ahead of me. So uh, he might have known him. I didn't know him, but yeah. Okay, good stuff. One of my last three questions here is about the future of aerial firefighting. And I assume they'll find more pilots and I assume they'll find, uh, in your words, more junkyard aircraft to uh, adapt. But what about drones? Has there been any discussion about trying to figure out a way to get unmanned aerial firefighting? The biggest thing about drones is trying not to run into one of them when you're over a fire. I mean, there was a real problem with that for a while, but that, of course, those are the public drones. Yeah, they are using drones. They're using them mostly for remote sensing, Okay. for IR stuff. I think the potential is unlimited. You know, it's not a great thing for pilots, but you can reuse them at night through smoke, whatever. I think the potential is unlimited, but I'm glad it's not part of my future. <laughs> Here on the show in recent days, we've talked about some of the technology and, for example, the auto ground collision, where if I pass out due to G's, the aircraft knows where I am. It knows the topography and it can save me. We've also had episodes on artificial intelligence and we've yet to have an episode on drones, but it's coming for those of you who keep asking eventually. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is as technology continues to improve and using some of those factors, yeah, I mean, theoretically, an unmanned platform should know exactly where it is and can sense the environment to know what the winds are doing and the fire. And it doesn't matter if the sun is shining or not. You could run that thing nonstop. Yeah. Well, they're going to replace fighter pilots and tanker pilots. We'll all be sitting in a trailer somewhere trying to fly it from there. <laughs> I guess. All right. Well, what about you, Jim? What's the future for you? You're done with your, how many years did you say total? Uh, I flew 35 years. Wow. Of course, five of them were as a co-pilot and as an air tech pilot. But then I flew uh, captain in this, the four and the six and 30 years in the S2. Well, so I'm going to ask for the future for you. But before I do, or maybe as part of that answer, did you ever keep track of, for example, how many fires or maybe named fires? I don't know if they named them or not or whatever. But Or did, was it just every year you just went and did it? Are you kidding? <laughs> I'm like the worst paperwork guy that ever lived. So, yeah. No, I didn't keep track of them. All right. I remember some of them. Some guys are meticulous that way. It's just that wasn't, I wasn't wired that way. All right. Probably why I was never a fire pilot. Well, you got close. So <laughs> you enjoyed the retired life now then? Uh, is that the future? I greatly enjoy it. I'm still involved with the Associated Aerial Firefighters. We have a meeting every December in Reno, and you're invited, and anybody else would like to attend. We have great guest speakers, and maybe we can get you to do that sometime. Oh, I don't know. I'm not the most articulate, but I do try. All right, then, Jim, my final question for you is, did you have a call sign that you used? And a lot of our military pilots <laughs> did, but I'm guessing, come on, you guys, that sounds like quite the eclectic gang. I'm sure you called each other something other than Jim or Jimmy. 
my call sign was Jimmy, I'm afraid to tell you. Like I say, the only Hulk call signs we had were Hoser. And I think his wife called him Hoser. Yeah. I've been called nearly everything in 30 years. We had two Navy pilots that used their call signs, uh-huh. Snapper and Hoser. And they'd be on the Victor frequency so we could hear them all over the state of California. So me and my partner and our air tech, we came up with call signs so that we could, when they'd come up, we'd come up with Black Buzzard and Red Rooster and Bald Eagle and White. And as soon as they heard us mimicking them, they would stop or they go to a different frequency. We didn't have call signs. All right. Well, you called yourself something earlier that, if you'll permit me, I think is a funny one. It's not particularly uh, nice, but foul ball, I think you said. (laughs) So Jim Barnes, call sign foul ball, I declare. Well, that's what my commander at McKinley called me when I got with him. He knew my history. That's awesome. Jim, this has been really fun. I honestly did not know that much about all this, and I think we've cast, I hope, a very good light on it and the brave people that do it. We didn't really talk about the folks on the ground, but I'm sure they're heroic as well to make these old aircraft fly and refuel them and fill them full of... They're my heroes. The people on the ground, they're my heroes. And, sir, it's been a great honor to talk to you, and thank you for your dedicated and distinguished service. You're quite welcome, Jim. And it's been a little effort to get our schedules aligned, but I'm glad we finally did. You were a lot of fun. Thank you. Yes, sir. Take care, sir. All right. At the very top of the episode, you might recall that I compared what Jim Barnes just described to combat. Man, I stand by that. I certainly think it sounds like it based on working with guys that are controlling where you're coming and going from and when you're cleared to attack, folks on the ground and having to work on the ballistics, although the water and the retardant don't really, but there's terrain, there's all those things. Man, that was fun. That's two episodes in a row where I really learned a lot. And I've got a couple caveats here we can cover, but boy, this is good stuff. So he might've said, and I think I followed up on it, the AN10X or 10 check. And in case we didn't completely cover that, that is the comprehensive instrument check ride late in flight training, right before you're winged. And I'll tell you what, I had a hard time with mine too, but I passed by the grace of God and the instructor. So it was scary, but yes, I did get through that. And Jim didn't, some people don't, but he still had a rewarding life. And so, you know, you never know what cards are going to be dealt us play your hand because that's all you got. I did check the 747 I read carries about 17,500 gallons of fire retardant. That's pretty impressive. Probably takes forever to fill it up. So my question about what was the perfect (laughs) aircraft, you know, I get it. If you could obviously fill that thing super fast, that'd be one thing, but the 747 is not going to be quite as agile as the little S2 tracker. So that was fun to hear. Now, Jim shared many stories of lost friends, which was pretty sobering. I used to wear a number on the back of my flight helmet. You might've heard me talk about this before. It was a tribute to the friends that I'd lost in military aviation. And that's no kidding friends or acquaintances that I had. I lost plenty of people and I shouldn't say it that way, right? We, the Navy lost plenty of people while I was 25 years in service. But if I didn't know who they were, I didn't put the number on the back. My helmet got a 15 by the end of it. This helmet sitting behind me where I'm recording in my studio here. Yeah, I knew 15 people. I watched two of them right in front of my eyes. And so I asked Jim how many he lost, and he had to think about it. He had written a few articles and different things, but when he finally sent it to me over 30 plus years, 18 people he could name that he either witnessed or heard about or saw or knew, but sobering stuff. Aviation is dangerous. You start doing it in the military or around fires, and it only gets worse. 
Now, I did watch Ward Carroll's video on Hoser, who later became Tozer. You need to hear that story. It also features a news clip of a time his aircraft was doused with fire retardant from another aircraft, but he still managed to land it by reaching his hand out the window and clearing a little spot to see. And I haven't seen the 1989 film Always in a long time, but if you remember that one, Richard Dreyfus at the beginning does something like that with his co-star, and uh, I think he ends up augering in. And I forgot to ask Jim what he thought of that movie and how accurate it was. I guess that's their top gun, maybe. Anyway, thanks again, Jim. Foul ball. I love that one. And maybe I'll see you and others like you this December back up in Reno. I'm going to be in Reno a lot this month. Uh, Maybe I'll make it back up there. All right. Well, we can begin to wrap it up this week. And man, we don't really need the disclaimer. And we don't have any new Patreon strike leads or above to announce, which is a bummer. But hey, I'm not greedy. I'm grateful for those we already have even if we're not announcing them every week. Maybe I should. Some of them, gosh, we've had for months, even years. And Patreon offers me a little summary of how much these folks are contributing to the show. And it's it's respectable. So I'm definitely grateful for all of you who support the show and really all of you who listen as well. All right, well, that will do it for this week. Thanks for joining us. If our plans work out, our friend Flounder will be back on episode 153 in 10 days to share a discussion with a gentleman who flew the space shuttle and knows a little bit about the future of space flight. Keep an eye out for that. Also, after that, we have a special series of at least six episodes called Fights On that we here at BVR Productions are working on. And some of it will be on our show. Some of it will be on other shows in our podcast network. That's going to run from the end of September through mid-November. And then, man, before you know it, the holidays will be in front of us in the end of the year. (laughs) Crazy. That will do it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. Do something unexpectedly nice for someone out there. And we'll see you next time here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So long. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow-ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.